0: Please join me in the reading of God's word. Joshua 2, 1 through 15. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out these men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Shelby for reading our scripture this morning. I want to greet uh, those of you that are uh, gathering together in homes here for our house gatherings. And uh, trust that's going well. Got a beautiful morning for it out there. And uh, so uh, if you're not yet in a house gathering, you want to get in a house gathering, we're we're getting them going. So uh, by all means, uh, please let us know that. And uh, you can just shoot an email. I'm not sure what the mechanism is for signing up for a house gathering, but uh, shoot an email to Pastor Johnny and he will get you sorted out. So uh, we would love to get you uh, connected into a house gathering. Also, uh, we mentioned uh, in the announcements uh, here earlier this morning, we have our webinar on a race called Coming Together, Moving Forward, and we got some panelists here. I'm excited about that. So, I uh, hope we to see you tonight uh, at 7 o'clock uh, for our webinar. I think that's going to be a great time. We had a preliminary conversation uh, last week to kind of get our ducks in a row about what we wanted to talk about, and that was a great conversation. And so, I'm looking forward to this evening. So, hopefully, we'll uh, see you tonight at 7 o'clock. Well, in any case, today we're uh, continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And today we enter into a new chapter of the Bible story. Our, our first chapter, as it were, of the story of the Bible was Beginnings. And in our chapter on Beginnings, we focused on the creation of the world and the creation of humanity. The second chapter was the age of the patriarchs, focusing on the Jewish patriarchs, who were really the, the founding fathers, as it were, of the Jewish people. And then our third chapter was law, focusing on the age of the law, the covenant that God made with His people. And the age of the law actually continues on throughout the Old Testament, but today we're going to start a new chapter uh, called the Judges. And the age of the Judges covers about 350 to 400 years in Israel's history starting really from the days of Joshua, who really is the first judge, all the way up until the days of the kings, King Saul, who's the first Jewish king. And throughout the history of the judges, Israel really is just in a descending downward spiral of its own making, really. First, uh, the spiral starts by them uh, sinning, breaking the terms of the covenant, which would then be followed by uh, divine chastisement, usually in the form of an oppressive foreign power would come in and oppress the Israelites. Then uh, they would repent and they would call out for mercy and then God would raise up a judge or a leader in the uh, Jewish people who would deliver them uh, from uh, the oppressive power. And it was wash, rinse, repeat for 400 years of Israel's history. And each time Israel sinned, they started lower than where they were before. And it just kept going down and down and down. This cycle of sin, repent, restoration, sin, repent, restoration. If you want to get a picture of what society looks like it, when it has become completely unhinged, read Judges 19 through the rest of the book of Judges. We're not going to get there in our sermon series, but go ahead and read that and you will see what happens when a society disconnects itself entirely from the guiding light of God. Well, originally when we started our sermon series and I charted it out, kind of timed it for the year, I had dedicated four sermons to the period of the Judges. But then we took a two-week break to cover uh, the matters of race. And so I, I've dropped one of the judges' sermon series here to save some time. Still trying to trying to stay on pace to get to Advent by Christmas. So we're still, uh, we're still gearing up for that. And uh, so for the next three Sundays, we're going to in- explore the age of the judges. And there's a lot of ground to cover here. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention these three weeks on three important women from the period of the judges, Rahab and Hannah and Ruth. And so we begin this morning by focusing on the story of Rahab, who sits at the very front of our chapter that we're telling, this uh, chapter of the judges. Rahab is highlighted in the New Testament as a as an example of faith, and so I want to follow that same theme this morning, looking to Rahab's story as a prime example of what I'm going to call trust faith. Trust faith. It's an important kind of faith. It's really it's the decisive kind of faith. And as we as we'll see from Rahab's story, there are three aspects of trust faith. And we're going to follow the thread of Rahab's story, and these three aspects are going to be the three sections of our sermon this morning. So before we get started, though, in looking at these three aspects, let me give a quick summary of what happened since we left off last Sunday and where we are this morning. A lot has happened in this past week while we were not uh, in our sermon series, and so I want to kind of catch us up to speed where we're at in the story. And then i got to make an important parenthetical comments. A little bit lengthy, so we'll get into that in a second here. But let me catch us up uh, to where we are. Last we left Israel, Moses was renewing the covenant with the people. He was laying out the terms of the covenant just prior to them entering into the promised land. So since Moses has renewed the covenant, since that time, the Israelites have successfully fought off attacks by two Ammonite kings, or Amorite kings, rather, and they've defeated these two kings. Moses has then since died. Joshua, who has been his right-hand man, is now in charge of the people, and the Israelites have been told by God that they're to enter into this land of Canaan, and they're to drive out and destroy all the inhabitants and to settle there as their new homeland. And so now they're poised under Joshua's command, as we come into Joshua chapter 2, where our passage picks up, they're poised under Joshua's command to enter to cross the Jordan River, to enter into the Canaanite land and to begin their conquest of the land. Okay, now for my extended parenthetical comment. I think it's important to pause in the story here and say some words about the Israelite conquest of the land of Canaan, because the whole story of Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan has understandably been raised as an objection against the story of the Bible and perhaps more poignantly against the God of the story of the Bible. How do we explain, excuse me, how do we explain the Israelites rolling into the land of Canaan and driving out the indigenous inhabitants? Isn't this just another example of bad ethnic behavior? Just another example of a greater imperial power stealing the homeland of a smaller indigenous people? And this is a serious question. I mean, Christopher Columbus in the last uh, number of years has gotten a rather bad rap in recent times about this very thing, and then we North Americans have a growing sense of what I might call collar-adjusting shame, as it were, related to our treatment of Native Americans in our own historical past. So how is this story that we're reading here about the Israelites going into the land of Canaan and driving out the inhabitants not just another example of powerful people groups behaving badly? and with divine sanction even. I mean, that's probably the most troubling aspect of this, because people in the Bible do all sorts of bad things. This isn't the first time we see people in the Bible doing bad things, but but the divine sanction is the thing that is troubling to many folks. Whole books have been written on this topic of the Israelite conquest of Canaan, and there are a lot of things that can and should be said here. We don't have time for an entire book, but I want to I want to say a few things before we just kind of breeze right past this and go on with our story that help provide a bit of context as to what we're reading. So the first thing that I would say is to think of the conquest of the land like a second local flood of judgment. You recall back into our story in Genesis chapter 6, the flood that God brought upon the earth Was God's judgment upon sinful humanity? In the days of Noah, humanity had become so bent and broken. We read in chapter 6 that human heart, that there was only evil all the time in the heart of the humans in those days. It was so bad that God decided to wipe it out and start over with Noah and his family. The same logic of divine judgment is at work here, but it's on a smaller local scale. In Genesis chapter 15, when God comes to Abraham, and he chooses Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you this land. He says, but, but right now is not the time to give you this land. Abraham is told he's going to have to wait 400 years before his, his family will come in and take possession of this land because, God says, the iniquity... Of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, it was going to take 400 years for Canaanite society to become sufficiently depraved to justify God sending the Israelites into the land. So Abraham and his family go off to Egypt and they spend 400 years in Egypt waiting for the land to get prepared, as it were, for them to come in. So by the time the Israelites show up now here in our story under Joshua and as we move into our story of Rahab, the people of Canaan are so deep into their pagan depravity that they're going so far as to sacrifice their children by burning them and sacrificing them to their pagan gods. It had become a dark and oppressive culture. It's like in the land of Canaan, like what the world had become in Genesis chapter 6. So we shouldn't have this image of all these wholesome suburbanite Canaanite families fleeing in their minivans while Joshua's armies laugh maniacally, killing, pillaging, and sacking their cities. Think of the conquest of Canaan like a mini local flood of judgment. Upon an oppressive and depraved society. Of course, if you have problems with the flood, that may not solve your problem here this morning, but the point is that both stories, the story of of the flood in Genesis 6 and the story of the conquest of the land, are judgment stories. And they show that God will not indefinitely turn a blind eye to human wickedness and oppression. So that's the first thing. Second thing that I would say is the conquest of the land was necessary to preserve God's people. So, at this point in Israel's history, here in Joshua chapter 2, the Israelites are not fundamentally any different than the other pagan nations. This was a point that I made in the last week. They're just as prone to wickedness and idolatry as the Canaanites are. I mean, they were called out of the pagan nations, right? And they were made a people group, but they're essentially just as prone to wickedness as the Canaanites are. God has given them the law for precisely this reason because they need something to restrain or to hem in all of their innate tendency towards wickedness. And one of the chief features of the law was to create a barrier between the Israelites and the other pagan peoples around them hang out with them and you'll become like them. That's the logic of the law. So the cleansing of the land was both a judgment upon the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanite wickedness, as well as a means of securing an Israelite quarantine, as it were, away from the disease of pagan sin. All right, now it should be noted as the story continues that we get to the New Testament and the gift of the Holy Spirit that is unleashed upon the people of God changes everything. After Jesus' resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's people are no longer required to be quarantined away from the world around them, but rather they're actually to go out and engage the world. The Holy Spirit is like the cure for sin. And so now that the people of God have the cure for sin, for their own sin. They have something that they can go out and share with the world. And so the the commandment that God gives to his people through Jesus at the end of Jesus' ministry is not sequester yourself away from the world, but the Great Commission is to go out into the world, to take the gospel out into the world. Okay, and then third, think of the conquest of the land like a second deliverance From Egypt. So think back again to the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. In the same way that God God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could show off his power, God likewise hardens the heart of the Canaanites so that he can show off his power, to reveal his power to his own people. So you might recall in the story of the 10 plagues, Pharaoh refused to relent and to let the people go. And this refusal to relent led to more and more plagues. And the same basic thing happens here in the conquest of the land. In Joshua 11:9 9 through 20, here's what we read as kind of a summary of all that had been going on. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel. Israel took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. So just as God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he persisted in rebellion against Israel and Israel's God, so too God has hardened the Canaanites' heart so that they continue and persist in battle against Israel and lose. So don't imagine in this kind of scenario of the conquest of the land that the canaanites keep offering peace treaties keep waving the white flag but israel is rejecting them i've been reading uh, about the allied invasion of europe particularly going after the nazis and one of the things that i i don't know that i had fully realized quite as well as i realized it reading some of these histories is that the that hitler as the head of the nazis absolutely refused to surrender even after he had lost the battles he was doomed to defeat they didn't have the material resources they didn't have the number of troops they didn't have the finances they didn't have any infrastructure left to continue fighting hitler refused to surrender and to relent and the not and the allied the allied troops had to come all the way into the land and force the surrender through the death of hitler and it wasn't until hitler killed himself and uh, released his hold upon the people of Germany that then the German generals could come and broker for peace and surrender. It's very similar to that, that the Canaanites are refusing to surrender. Even when all would seem lost, they refused to sue for peace and instead choose to fight Israel all the way to the bitter end. So if you have a category in your mind for the moral necessity of the Allied armies driving into Germany in order to destroy the Nazis who refused to surrender. You're getting close to the picture of what happened in Canaan. All right, that was a long parenthetical comment. So enough of that. Let's get back to the story of Rahab and her example of trust faith. All right, so the first aspect of trust faith that we see in the story of Rahab is this. Trust faith chooses safety in God over earthly safety. Trust faith chooses safety in God over earthly safety. As Israel enters into the land of Canaan, the very first city that they come upon is the walled city of Jericho. And this is an imposing city. In verse 1 we see of chapter 2 that Joshua, like Moses, sends a couple of spies into the land, or into the city rather, to kind of get the lay of things and sort out their plan. And the spies need an inconspicuous place to spend the night, so they end up at Rahab's house. And the king of Jericho, in verses 2 through 3, who was obviously very aware of and fearful of the Israelite threat just across the river, hears the two spies have come into the city and that they're at Rahab's house. So he sends word and he asks Rahab to send them out. And presumably, neither we nor he would have any reason to expect that she would do anything different. From a strictly human perspective, it would not have been presumptuous for Rahab to think that she and her people were relatively safe within their walled city. And as we read later in the account here of the defeat of Jericho, the walls of of the city were sufficiently large that it took a miraculous earthquake to bring them down. So they were formidable walls. And in the ancient world, to have walls, that was the great defense of a city. So given the security of the city walls, it wouldn't have gone well for Rahab if she had been caught protecting the spies. So we would expect naturally that she would give them up, but she doesn't. In verse 4, we read that she hid the spies instead on her roof. And then she tells the king's messengers, yes, the men had in fact been there, but they had since left and they had gone out the gate. And if you hurry, you can catch them. So the king sends out riders after the spies who are, of course, still hiding on Rahab's roof. And then we get to the reason that she hid the spies in verse 9. Rahab tells the spies that she knows that God has given the entire land into the hands of Israel. Rahab and her people have heard how Israel's God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea. I mean, this story of Israel's coming out of Egypt through the Red Sea, that happened 40 years ago, but the rumor of that, this great people in the wilderness, this has made its way to to her city. And so she's heard about how God delivered them through the Red Sea from the hands of the Egyptians. She's heard about how they have most recently destroyed these two Amorite kings, And the hearts of Rahab and her people, she says, are melting in fear. So Rahab here is faced with a choice. Either she was going to cast her lot with her people, her king and her city walls, or she was going to cast her lot with the God of Israel. Rahab saw no earthly power, was going to be able to deliver her from the peril of the Israelites except Israel's God. And so she rolled the dice of her life and she bet on Israel's God. Rahab forsook the safety of her people and chose to find her safety in God. And her faith was vindicated. We go on to read that the spies do her a good turn for her good turn when Israel sacks the city Rahab and her family are saved and then we read later in Joshua 6 that that they were brought in and they lived with the Israelite people so we see in Ahab's and Rahab's story the greatest aspect of faith trust of trust faith when we are forced to choose between two sources of safety two means of security two avenues for deliverance, either earthly or divine. Trust faith chooses God. Perhaps you're in that position this morning. Perhaps like Rahab, you have to make a choice about where your best bet for safety lies. The world says that safety and security lies with great earthly powers, with strong kings, with high walls, with the earthly powers of prestige and friendship and politics and health and wealth. But trust faith says that no earthly power is sufficient to provide better security than what God can provide. Putting our hope for security in God may not work out in all the ways that we prefer, but it always works out in the long run just like it did for Rahab. There may, in fact, there almost certainly will be, on the path of trust faith, a cross that awaits us in our future. But there is also always a resurrection on the path of trust faith that follows the cross. God's power to save eclipses all other powers. So do you vainly cast your lot with earthly powers or will you, like Rahab, cast your lot with the God who stands above all earthly powers, the God who has made those earthly powers and who holds them lightly and loosely between his thumb and his fingers? These powers are nothing compared to God's powers. So the first aspect of trust faith is that it chooses safety in God over earthly safety. The second aspect of trust faith is that it it inevitably involves steps of faith. Trust faith inevitably involves steps of faith. As we've seen, Rahab does more than simply believe that the God of Israel is a safer bed. Than her people. She doesn't just choose God in her heart and then continue on like a faithful citizen of Jericho. Her faith in Israel's God spurs her to action. She hides the spies. Her faith in God is embodied in the choice that she makes. That's how trust faith always works, or we can say, trust faith always works. Trust faith always acts. It always steps out. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he spoke of good works. I think this is really helpful. He spoke of good works as the incarnation of faith. Like Christ's deity, faith is invisible. It's immaterial. It can't be seen. You can't see just looking at me standing here whether or not I have faith. Just by looking at Christ, you can't tell whether or not He is the Son of God. And yet, like Christ's deity, faith is seen in our actions. Just as Christ's miracles were the incarnation of His deity, so too works of faith are the incarnation of faith. Our faith in God's capacity to save will inevitably compel us to take steps that are in keeping with that faith. I mean, imagine Rahab having faith that the God of Israel was the one that she should put her faith in, but then didn't take any steps differently related to the spies, right? She just turned them over to the king and just continued to have faith that God would, would win, Right? That, that's not actually faith. right? Faith compelled her to take steps that embodied her faith, that incarnated her faith, which is why she delivered the spies. God tells us, for instance, that He is the healer of relationships. That's easy to believe intellectually, but what if He is asking you to be the big person and to take the first step forward to restore the relationship? That takes trust faith the actions takes trust faith or god says that he comes to the aid of the oppressed and the wronged that's easy to believe but perhaps god is asking you to speak up at work or in some other context on behalf of another rather than simply turning away in complicit silence that takes trust faith god says that he is sovereign over all things that's easy to believe but perhaps god is asking you to let go and give up control in a certain area of your life. That takes trust faith. Trust faith actively trusts God. It actively trusts God. And that inevitably means stepping into places that leave us vulnerable where we are depending upon Him to hold us up. Rahab took a risk when she went to the aid of the spies because how could it have gone for her if they hadn't delivered her, if Through them, God had not come to her aid. She put herself in a position of vulnerability, trusting in Israel's God. Let's follow Rahab's example and let our trust faith lead us out into steps of faith. All right, so the first aspect of trust faith is that Trust faith chooses safety in God over earthly safety. The second aspect of trust faith is that it inevitably takes steps of faith. It's an embodied faith. And then finally, the third aspect of trust faith is that it is the kind of faith that is decisive in securing deliverance. Trust faith is the kind of faith that is decisive in securing deliverance. When we first encounter Rahab here in her story, her cognitive or intellectual, or we could say her doctrinal knowledge of God would have been very limited. She's a pagan living in pagan Jericho. She would have had very limited to no interaction with the Israelite people. She probably knew no more about God than the rumors that she had heard from the traveling men who passed through her place of business. But even with as little as she knew about the God of Israel, she believes the God of Israel will be victorious against her city. And so because of that belief, she comes to the aid of the two spies, hoping that they will show her mercy when their side wins the battle. So she says to them in verse 12 here of our passage, essentially she says, please remember this kindness that I am doing to you When your God gives you victory over my people, as I have done to you, would you please do back to me? And sure enough, the Israelite God is victorious, and she and her family are spared. And it was her embodied trust faith, not her limited doctrinal faith or intellectual faith that secured deliverance for her and her family. She wasn't delivered simply because she knew information about God. She was delivered because she, in faith, cast herself upon the mercy of God. She actively entrusted herself to His care. All right, now let me see if I'm going to make a comparison here between trust faith and then what I'm going to call doctrinal faith. There's two kinds of faith that we can find, legitimate kinds of faith in Scripture. There's what we would call doctrinal faith, and then there's what we call what I've been calling trust faith. Both of these are valid, but they are different. For example, doctrinal faith, we could say, is an affirmation or a belief regarding biblical ideals and ideas. So for example, I might say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Or I might say that I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Or that I believe God exists as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and so forth. And these are true, and they are also essential to the Christian religion. This, these are things that can't be proved empirically. I can't put in a test tube, Jesus, or prove the Trinity in the same way that I can prove a, a mathematical theorem They can't be proven empirically, but there are many things in life that we hold just as tenaciously that we can't prove empirically. But as Christians, we nonetheless accept these doctrinal truths as matters of our faith for any number of good reasons. We accept these doctrinal truths because of, I think, first and foremost, our personal encounter, our spiritual personal encounter with the living person of Jesus We accept these doctrinal truths because of the teachings of the Scripture, because of the testimony of those that we trust. We accept them because they make sense of our lives, right? They make sense of the world as we experience these doctrinal truths. Doctrinal faith is good and it's necessary, and the church cannot long survive without it. But that's not primarily the kind of faith that Rahab had, and it wasn't the kind of faith that saved her in this situation. Rahab had trust faith, and trust faith, as we have been talking about, isn't just belief in Christian ideas or concepts, it is actively casting your lot with God and trusting that He will catch you. Trust faith is believing that God is the most sure source of safety and ordering your life accordingly. Trust faith and doctrinal faith are not opposed to each other and they can exist together, but they can exist together in the same person in differing amounts. You can have a tremendous amount of trust faith in God while having only a very limited under standing, or amount of doctrinal faith. And the reverse is also true. You can have a tremendous amount of doctrinal faith. You can understand a lot of doctrinal faith and have a very limited amount of trust faith. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 is often uh, referred to as the chapter of faith because it extols the virtue of faith all throughout chapter 11. But what the author is extolling particularly is trust faith. That's what he's highlighting in chapter 11. And he says in 11.6 that without trust faith, it is impossible to please God. And as the chapter shows, it's not only impossible to please God, it's impossible to experience God's salvation without trust faith. You can have all the doctrinal faith you want, but without trust faith, you are not going to be delivered. So we uh, we uh, we have four kids in my family uh, from the ages of five all the way up to 18. And uh, if you were to bring them out and sit them down and you were to, to, to ply them with questions about information related to their father, they could tell you varying degrees of information about me. They have different levels of understanding about me, right? So from the, the older children could tell you... Uh, that I have a PhD, they may not even know what it's in, all the way down to Maley, our youngest, who just knows that uh, I like to play with her at night and I read her stories, right? So we have all these different degrees of information that they could convey about me. But that's not asking them, what do you know about your dad is a different question than asking them, do you trust your dad? So those are not quite the same questions, right? In our relationship with God, it's not just what do we know about God? What do we believe about God? What are the facts about God, right? That's one set of questions, and that's what our doctrinal faith covers, right? But that's a different set of questions than do you trust God? That's a separate question relates to trust faith. And here's the point I'm pressing towards. Doctrinal faith is important and vital, but doctrinal faith isn't the same as trust faith, and doctrinal faith can't save you. Doctrinal faith by itself cannot even make you a Christian. The decisive thing when our lives are in jeopardy, when we need someone to come and deliver us, the decisive thing is trust faith. Do you have trust faith in God this morning? To my Christian brothers and sisters, I would say to you, Don't confuse doctrinal faith and trust faith. That was a mistake of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, of the scribes. It was even the mistake of the Apostle Paul until he met Jesus. They all thought that because they had great doctrinal faith, and they did have great doctrinal faith, they all thought that because they had great doctrinal faith, they were good. But they weren't good. They were damned, in fact. The Apostle James in chapter 2 insists that doctrinal faith, devoid of trust faith, is actually dead faith. Even the demons have that sort of faith because doctrinal faith can't get you where you need to go. Doctrinal faith can't deliver you. We need ultimately trust faith. Doctrinal faith is good, and we should continue to press into it. And it's why we gather together and I teach you things on Sunday mornings and we learn things from reading the Bible. We want to increase on a doctoral faith, doctrinal faith. But we want to increase our doctrinal faith so as to enable our ability to lean into our trust faith. That is what delivers us and that is what pleases God. And to my non-Christian friends who might be joining us this morning, let me just say you don't have to have all of the doctrinal stuff figured out the crucial thing the decisive thing is that you cast your lot with jesus to deliver you many of us as christians we converted to jesus not many of us i dare say all of us as christians converted to jesus without really understanding all of the christian doctrines right particularly if you came to christ as a young child you knew very little right but we came to jesus anyway convinced that he was the decisive one that could deliver us in our plight and in our trial of sin. You don't have to have it all figured out if you're a non-Christian. Maybe you're newer-ish to the Christian faith, or you're still exploring aspects of the Christian faith. You haven't figured it all out. But you do know enough like Rahab knew when she encountered those Israeli spies You know enough to know that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ, is the decisive one that you want to be on His side. You know enough this morning to ally yourself, as it were, with God. And that's sufficient knowledge. Jesus is God's means of making all things new. That's you and that's me. He is the one that makes all things new. You don't have to understand exactly how He makes all things new. We'll spend the rest of our lives understanding and growing in our capacity to understand all that. But we do need to take refuge in Him. So God is calling both my Christian brothers and sisters. He's calling my non-Christian friends. He's calling me, all of us this morning, to actively engage in trust faith in relation to Him, to take our refuge in Him. So let's be like Rahab. Let's put our trust faith in God through Jesus Christ this morning. Join me in prayer. God, thank You that uh, You do not make us uh, take a doctrinal test before we can come to You as Your children, but that You uh, offer Your hand, and if we grasp it, uh, in faith that is sufficient for salvation. So God, I pray for for all of us here, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, I pray that you would um, not allow us to confuse doctrinal faith with trust faith, but that we would uh, live into what it means to trust you. And for my uh, non-Christian friends uh, listening this morning, Lord, I pray that you would uh, not Make them think they got to get it all figured out and understand all the doctrines before they can come to you and grasp your hand. I pray that you would give them, by the Spirit, the capacity to reach out to you in faith and lay hold of your hand, Lord. And then in that relationship, may they come to understand all the things that you want them to understand. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first, that you did reach out your hand first, and that by your Spirit you've empowered us to reach out back to you. Keep us trusting you, Lord, we pray in
0: your Son's name. Amen.